listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello everyone, it's Fran Barber here. And I'm Robin Whittaker. And this week we come to discuss uh, the first week in Epiphany or Baptism of the Lord. And we'll be focusing particularly on Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 9 on Acts 10, verses 34 to 43, and Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. And we're going to begin with Isaiah, but perhaps a word or two about Epiphany. So this is the first week in the season that um, is understood to to mean the revelation of God. Sometimes it's it's known particularly as the revelation to the Gentiles, but I think that's a bit too narrow. Mm-hmm. It's the season of, of coming to see more fully the identity of Jesus. Yeah, and given it follows on directly from Christmas, we've had this announcement of birth. We've had hints about Jesus' identity in our Christmas stories, as they're known. Um, and now we, we're, you know, we leap forward to the adult Jesus beginning ministry and what we'll see over the lectionary weeks ahead is the revealing of Jesus' identity. So. And particularly in the gospel reading we come to later, the actual the voice from God mm. of the heaven naming who this person is. Exactly. But, but we're going to start with Isaiah, aren't we? We are. Um, so Isaiah 42 is uh, one of these so-called servant songs. Mm. So a series here in this Deutero-Isaiah um, over the sort of next 10, 12 chapters in Isaiah, uh, that talk about my servant, so the servant leader figure. And a bit of context can be helpful here. We're looking at um, a prophet speaking to exiles, so they're still very much recovering from the destruction of the temple, uh, the destruction from the Babylonian army. And there's a question about what leadership will look like. How will we regather? How will we go forward? And so what's promised here is a servant, a chosen one, um, whose spirit, who um, upon whom God's spirit dwells or sits or anoints, and this is just really important context for the way Matthew will talk about Jesus, apart from anything else. Well, yes, I was thinking um, in, in bigger picture terms when I came to these readings this week that you know if you took um, the quotes from Isaiah out of the New Testament, <laughs> mm. you would have very little. And a much less understanding of what's going on and who this Jesus is promised. Well, how this Jesus is a fulfilment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we see that particularly in Matthew's mm. gospel for this, this year of Matthew, constant referring to fulfilment and to quoting scripture. Um, it's worth noting some of the qualities I think of this servant. I don't know what you noticed, Fran, but uh, you know, I was struck by he brings justice. That's his main role in this particular passage. Um, but without sort of yelling or, um, you know, without force in a sense, probably metaphorically. Um, and then some scholars, that the syntax of verse 3 is a, quite tricky to know, like is it a bruised reed he will not break, as in the servant will not break a reed, or is the servant the reed? And some mm. scholars read the servant as a bruised reed he is, implied, mm, mm. he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he is. He is. Um, but will not be quenched because God's spirit is upon him, which made me think, I mean, you could do something fun with a sermon about like, are you like a dimly burning candle or a bruised reed? Because yeah. congratulations, you too yeah, can yeah. be a chosen one of and God. That, like the point is he's not this charismatic, mighty warrior no. leader. He's a somewhat fragile servant leader and yet the spirit 
gives him the strength required. Well, it's it's a it's an echo of that vulnerability and strength dynamic that yep. um, happens through the gospel into the New Testament in those in clear ways, does isn't it? Yep. Exactly. Um, but yes, I do like the idea of well, not like the idea, but do think yeah, post Christmas of some people would see themselves as bruised reeds. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, the other thing here I would say is we have two parts to this chapter of Isaiah or these nine verses we've been given. And in verse 5 it shifts and we start to broaden out from just this one spirit, this one servant upon whom God's spirit rests to all the people of Israel. Well, yes, and it's also, isn't it, um, putting alongside that new thing of the suffering servant, putting alongside that the creator God. Yes. The God, this God is also creator, whom we know very well, mm. but that there's a different way in which this sovereignty is being realised or expressed yeah. through the suffering servant. Exactly. And, you know, and language there of, you know, to all the people, you know, God is given breath and um, in the spirit of God, you know, they walk. So I, I think thinking too about servant leadership and anointing and Jesus' identity and all these themes, one thing to play with here is this balance between the individual and the communal, that the the commission to bring justice to the world that the servant gets is reiterated in different language in verses 5 to 7 um, for all the people. They're to be the light to the nations, you know, to bring righteousness um you know, that, that's what they're covenanted to be. So this is not an individual calling. This is a communal calling. No, no, I, yes. I, well, I would be emphasising that definitely. And also, um, given the Matthew reading set alongside for today, that word righteousness in verse yeah. 6 um, is one to play with and to explore, I think, if you're preaching on both those texts. Yeah. As well as, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this in a sec with Matthew, whether you know, Jesus' baptism is not the same as Christian baptism, but... You know, of course, Christian baptism is about participating in God's mission and is fundamentally communal. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if you were going to pick up some of those themes later, I think bringing Isaiah into that conversation is really important in terms of saying this is, again, the commission to be a people of justice and a people of peace and a people who bring light is a commission that God always gave to the community, not to an individual. Mm. Um Anything else you'd pick up from um, Isaiah before I, we move I on? I don't think specifically from this section. Um, listeners, I did tend to read on. I got it wrong and went on to verse 19. So Friend I do have prepared the next I, I prepared the hymn that comes after. <laughs> so I do have some things about to say about the fabulous imagery there around labour and so on. Mm. Um, but no, I'd, I'd keep the picture quite big here um, with Isaiah and um, the importance of Isaiah in recognising um, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to the Gospel, to Matthew 3. I'm immediately struck in the first verse that Jesus came from Galilee to the um, to John at the Jordan, um, that when we first read this, we think, oh, he's just going along on his own. But actually there are people everywhere mm. all going in that direction. And so this is Jesus' From the very get-go, well, we've had him from the very get-go be born in a mucky stable, yeah. <laughs> um, but he's still with the – he's in solidarity with the unwashed, as it were, or all people who are mm. going to John. So there's something um, that very messy uh, about that that signifies who he is as well. Mm. 
Yeah, that that setting is really important. And if we read, you know, at the beginning of this chapter, Matthew introduces John the baptizer. Um, And, you know, in Matthew, we get some unique bits here. He's just before this, he's been warning the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, you brood of vipers, we get this strong. So Matthew's gospel gives the baptism of Jesus quite an apocalyptic kind of Mm. setting. And we get lots of judgment in imagery all around it. But you know, when John the baptizer speaks to the crowd, he talks about we have Abraham as our ancestor. I mean, this is also a Jewish crowd. Mm. So Jesus here comes as a Jew in a Jewish region to this water purification ritual, which we know exists well before this. It's a purification, um, you know, for people come confessing sins, we're told in verse 6. So it's associated with forgiveness and associated with repentance in John's language. Can I interrupt yep. there? Because I think it would be good to give the people out there just a couple of references. Robin and I spoke about this before we pressed record and to me it was tremendously important for some of us to hear some of those references from the Hebrew Scriptures mm-hmm. where this purification thing's happening. And the reason I say that is perhaps obvious to you but that this this what's going on here wasn't invented by Christians. By Christians. Yeah. There aren't any Christians here. They're all no. Jews or Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, probably mostly Jews probably in, in mostly this particular Jews. scene. Yeah, um, and so what's being built on this? This what's happening here has has a history. Yeah, and a precedence. No, one of the things I tell my students, which sometimes blows minds, is that we have here, um, for starters, a mechanism for forgiveness of sins, and it is one of many in Judaism. So. Christians, because we associate forgiveness of sins so strongly with the cross of Jesus, tend to forget that Christians did not invent divine Mm. forgiveness. It's already a very strong existing tradition in the Jewish tradition, and this is one means of that. But to go to your question, Fran, um, I had to look up some of the language, and of course there's general references in particularly in the Pentateuch to water purification and that you must purify yourself with water after all sorts of things, touching a corpse, uh, menstruation, things that would make you ritually unclean. Um, but we also get this this word baptizo, this Greek verb, which is where we get baptist, baptism from, which of course becomes a sacramental and technical term in the Christian tradition, but here it's not. So we might want to think of this as John the washer or John the, the purifier. Um, in that famous story in Second Kings, for example, where Naaman asks the prophet to heal him of his leprosy, he's told to go wash himself in the Jordan seven times. This is Second Kings 5. And the language there used is this verb baptizo. So he, he baptizes himself literally in the Jordan seven times. Um, in Sirach, we have, again, this word baptizo used for washing after a corpse to purify yourself. So it has a much wider resonance and... Um, I think it helps to remember that when we yeah yeah no I do I do too just in terms of our um, our memory of Judaism or our affiliation with mm. Judaism and 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 keeping that yep. um, to the fore. But the other bit, if I can say one more thing about the background, because it's not in our lectionary reading, but right before verse thirteen, John has said, "I baptize you with water." Mm. Um, for repentance, but one is coming who'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And I think this is one of the distinctions we start to get between the ministry of Jesus and what John and other yeah. Jewish prophetic leaders do. Um, and and like after saying that, then Jesus appears, as you said, and he mm. comes to John. Comes, and he also, I'm interested in the word he consented. So, yes. um, you know, 
John's like, well, shouldn't you be baptising me? What are you talking about? And how I read this is another way in which Jesus seeks solidarity with us in consenting that John baptise him and not the other way around. Yeah, and it's worth noting only Matthew's gospel has that bit in verse 14 where John kind of almost protests and says, but I need to be baptised by you. You're more important. I've said that to everybody. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But also the consented is also what Jesus did at the crucifixion too. There's something portentious about that. Yes, submitting himself to these human um, ways of being, I guess. Um, but, But, I mean, this is important. It points to what is potentially a little theological concern here Mm. like that mark just has jesus go and be baptized and it's all fine and matthew's put this in here with jesus answer let it be so to fulfill all righteousness so probably righteousness according to the jewish law that jesus is looking like he's doing all the right things Mm. um and i think it's to address the concern that this is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the christian tradition maintains jesus is sinless so you have a theological dilemma mm. about why does the sinless Son of God need a baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Because what what is he mm. repenting from? And that's yeah. been a long theological. Yeah. I don't think we need don't to get pre- hung up no, on that. Don't, don't go into that unduly. But it it explains why we have that fun little bit there. Yeah, right. I was going to take a safer route there if I was going <laughs> there and wondered about which you might not approve of scholarly, but um. The rightness of relationship mm. that is embedded in one understanding of righteousness, yeah. the, the rightness of relationship here and with God and with one another is what's being pointed to. Here. Yeah, I really like that. Oh, that's good. Yeah, no. So that's I, where I, I would go. <laughs> <laughs> but also, that's a that also then becomes a really useful metaphor for our own lives, and that even um, you know a lot of you listening are preachers, so you're in perhaps some kind of leadership role in your congregations. Um, even as leaders, we know we need to like consent to mm-hmm. receive ministry from others. Like it, it is about that mutual submission and recognising that we all need each other's ministry. So you could play with perhaps that around yeah. the righteous, right relationship. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yep. Um, and I did want to make a bigger picture point here too, yep. just because of this. I was thinking, folks, those in Australia, it's holiday time. And if you're... Um, a minister in a city sort of a region, you probably have half your congregation disappear at this time. And that's a shame if they're not going to church somewhere else. This is a this is a fantastic week of readings. Yeah. And if I can be provocative, um, if you're somewhere where the font is in a dusty corner, right, at the back of the church, I challenge you perhaps this week <laughs> when half your people perhaps aren't there. <laughs> to get upset. Get up, Yeah, to get upset. Bring it out and put it at the door where it's meant to be. Yes. Um, as a signifier of, you know, how you, you're entering this place. Yes. And uh, Remembering that's the your first baptism. place you come to. So that's my first challenge. Um, and my second is that because we, and many of us in go on holiday and don't hear this reading, is to have it read every time you baptise someone. Mm. I think yeah. Brendan Byrne suggests that in his one of his one of his books. Anyway, yeah, and my nervousness with that, I think, is see the biblical scholar in me um, wants to say, like, yes, there's a lot we can learn and ponder um, from this reading, but in many ways, it also has nothing to do with Christian baptism. Well, I oh, see that's where I would disagree <laughs> as a preacher because okay. yeah. um, I think there are three things we can talk about that in 
that happens in Jesus' baptism here. So fulfills righteousness. Well, in this, that sense, mm-hmm. when we consent to baptism or are consented for by our guardians, um, it is a broken sort of relationship that we're seeking to have mended mm-hmm. between us and God and a recognition of our frailty. Secondly, um, it is a choice to turn to God and a daily invitation to repentance, which is what – so Jesus has consented in this text anyway. Um, And it's a way of choosing mercy and justice, which is what's happening here. Um, And then we also see Jesus choosing shortly after this when he's in the wilderness in the temptation and he chooses not to take the power that's offered to him. Yes, chooses to be so. There's a choosing, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, um, but the emphasis I would have is on metanoia as as changing of our mind, not sort of self-flagellation and yeah, repentance, repentance. like a turning towards. But also in this, but in Jesus' baptism, as is in ours, it it, it's announced who we are and whose we are. Yes, and I think so. For those three reasons, I theological reasons. There is a theological connection, definitely. See, I think if I was going to, and, you know, some people do remembrance of baptism and other, you know, liturgical things on this particular week of the lectionary year. See, I think for me I would probably then want to draw in Isaiah as well to make Mm. a point that, you know, our baptism is not just, you know, it sometimes gets portrayed as as if we do this to mimic Jesus. Now there's lots of other things we do to try and imitate Mm. Jesus in the best sense of that. But actually... Yeah, what you've drawn to theologically I entirely agree with, but just being careful that we don't say we kind of do this because Jesus did this when this is not – it Christianizes something yeah. that here is a Jewish ritual and I just want to keep a little bit of separation even though we can pull out those theological threads that continue, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think – see, again, I would think that's a bit careful and that, that for the preacher to the community they need to hear those things. But, yeah, I mean, it's not – it's not the same. It's not the same as saying it's you know at Easter he's being crucified. Do that yourself. Like, <laughs> Go and be not, crucified. Like, we're not doing that anyway. No, but I mean, one the third theological thing you said I think is the really important probably climax of this reading in mm. in Matthew, which is again Matthew is differs from Mark and Luke, where in Mark and Luke the voice from heaven says you are my son, mm. and this is my son. In in Matthew it's this is so it's like an announcement to everyone. Um. And I think it is this, like this now is where Jesus receives the spirit like the servant in Isaiah and therefore begins ministry as God's both chosen and beloved one Mm. um, who is pleasing to God before he's done anything. So that to me is like the theological, like it's why Mm. we baptise babies in Mm. at least our Mm. tradition Mm. because it's about the grace of God before we've responded to or even... Yeah, you know, acknowledged it, and I was struck too with beloved. Like this is one of those sentences with just um, pointers and echoes from mm. so many places. But that, that this could be Isaac in Genesis twenty-two yeah. as well. You know, it's just it's loaded um, with symbolism and yep. import. That yep. sentence. Yeah, it is. Anything else to mention on? I mean, there's so much we could say about this. Um, oh, fun little. Aside, mm. I don't know if this is really helpful, but I've always been intrigued that the Spirit of God appears like a dove in some of these texts. Um, and, you know, you might think of the dove after Noah's Ark who brings, maybe it's a dove or a pigeon or something, brings the branch or some people see a connection here to the Spirit hovering over the water in Genesis 1, although that's not really a bird term. 
Um, but something I read recently pointed out that birds, that this might be a bit of a Roman or a wider cultural thing that made sense in the first century because birds are omens right. in Roman traditions and particularly associated with rulers. So before, you know... So the eagle. So the eagle, yeah. right, and um, and other bird omens. Um, so Zeus's messenger was a dove. Right. So this might just bring in, even though we're in a very Jewish scene here, we get this sort of reference that I think culturally might make more sense in a wider society in a way that it doesn't anymore to us. And does that also suggest some sort of apocalyptic edge from what I'm hearing there? I mean, we hear dove as peaceful and white and... Yeah. <laughs> yes. But those references to birds you just made are... Yeah, um, a bit more. ambiguous. Yeah, and and the omen stuff around like who's going to be a great leader. Yeah. Um, are definitely, you know, so we've got to hold this tension between this gentle suffering servant we get in Isaiah. Not that that's necessarily a text just about Jesus, but it gets interpreted as a precursor to Jesus in the Christian tradition. Um, with all of the stuff around this passage about Jesus coming to judge and separate mm. the chaff and the wheat mm. and um. And and perhaps a cultural reference here to something that is a omen about a future great leader. So we've got a right. slightly political, maybe apocalyptic kind of image. So I think it really does come to a head with this dis- descent of the spirit that literally sits on Jesus um, and then this voice, this is the anointing of him for Oh, my last thing to say yeah. there is just remember the new creation imagery that's coming through there with the spirit um, mm. echoing the hovering spirit at creation. Yes. So th- this is a radical new thing that's happened, that God is doing, a radical new way God is connecting with God's people. Yes, although I would want to attempt new but also entirely consistent. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, I've been talking about that with yeah. the echoes of the purification into baptism, but yeah, this is a, something about creation is happening again. Yeah, but also about call because mm. this language of my spirit anointing or my spirit resting upon is everywhere in the Hebrew Bible for prophets and leaders. So, it you know, both and, mm. I guess, going on, which is why we, yeah, need to unpack it. Anyway, let's turn to Acts chapter 10 perhaps. So this passage comes straight after the so-called conversion of Cornelius Mm -hmm. and it's the passage about Peter's sermon in Cornelius' house. Now I read a bit of Willie James Jennings' commentary on Acts um, for this reading. Incredibly powerful commentary, that one. Um, Mm. He's a a poetic theologian but he very much emphasises the divine transgression that is going on in being played through acts and it's God, God's self transgressing God's own boundaries all the time. So Willie James talks about God bringing Peter to someone who is outside the covenant, i.e. Cornelius, um, is God transgressing his own boundary that that were given to the Jewish people. were given to the Jewish people. and this this happens in various ways in in this passage, um, but Jennings also wants to draw out the very strong contrast between the intimate um, private gathering going on here and the cosmic implications of the message 
yeah. sort of the going, the in and the out that's happened throughout acts, but particularly here. Mm. Um, so that's yeah. something to play with as well. Yeah, and I mean, Luke is a, a very clever storyteller, I think. So we, we're getting this build up, like you said, Cornelius, the first explicitly Gentile convert in Acts. Mm. And, of course, embedded in that whole Cornelius story is the very famous vision of, that Peter has of the sheet with all the clean and unclean things mm. together and God saying what I've declared clean is clean. So, again, a breaking, like you say, that tr- language of tra- transgressing. Yeah, um, really, in a really um, offensive way. Yeah. Like that would have been, been really obnoxious to, yeah, <laughs> to a lot of people. Yeah. And I think we see Peter... Peter, just beginning to grasp the the enormity of that here in a couple of little words, don't we? Where yeah. we, we have in the English in the first verse, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. I don't like this translation no. at all. Um, the verb here, this catalambano verb, has a sense of beginning to grasp but a process of grasping. Mm. Um, it's a, almost a process word. So I would translate this something, I mean, the Greek is literally Peter opened his mouth and said, you know, um, I, am, I am beginning to grasp mm. that God shows no partiality or no favouritism. It's like we're seeing a process happening for Peter that is his own kind of conversion. His own epiphany. Yes, his <laughs> own epiphany. Yeah. Emerging. To, and, to what God's telling him now through revelations and visions of the implication of the Jesus event. And I do think it's probably important to make a quick comment here about Judaism in this time, where, which was quite a diverse uh, group of people. Yep. Not strong boundaries really at all. It accepted a lot of different ideas and also conversion was not unheard of. People did yeah. convert to Judaism. So it's not that there was this incredibly delineated enclaved kind enclaved of yeah. thing. Um, and so he has some experience of the other yeah. coming in. Yes. But what's being presented to him in that vision and here his understanding is this is Bigger than you think. <laughs> it's not yeah. just a few token new people. No, this is going to break open and actually challenge the very um, sort of cultural identity yeah. of Judaism. Yeah. I was fascinated reading this again um, by verse 35 actually that what, you know, the end of the sentence that, you know, I'm beginning to grasp that God shows no favoritism, but in every nation, so again that expansive vision, mm. um, anyone who fears God – and we should say fear of God here in the sense of reveres yeah. God. Um, so we know there were God-fearers, going to your point, there were lots of Gentile God-fearers who were sort of on the fringes or part of Jewish communities in various ways, who fears God and does what is right. And the language of rightness is here is this justice-righteousness. Mm-hmm. So this takes us right back to that Isaiah 42 and, again, the righteousness language in Matthew. But I was really struck that these are the qualities that, that Peter now talks about being like revere God mm. and do what is just, mm. basically like, and that is a radical departure, well, it, as you're saying, from the ethnic location yeah, of it. It's, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, you could play with this theme of righteousness throughout if you wanted to pick up that as a thread and was sick of preaching about baptism if you have perhaps preached Done this. Done that lots before. <laughs> Every year. I mean, this reading here, this passage, is just such a fabulous summary of the gospel. Mm, it's beautiful. It's incredibly eloquent and succinct. Yep. Um, I'm just trying to pick out. <laughs> I suppose uh, 
One thing Jennings does emphasise is the listening first that he interprets that has gone on here. Mm. Um, now, I don't know whether Jennings was referring to what we have here as we are witnesses. The word witnesses used here a few yeah. times. But Peter, I suppose Peter emphasises that Jesus appeared not to everyone but to some. Yes. And he, Peter's heard about it. So it's just that he, the fact is we listen for what's happened, for the testimony and the witness. Yeah. And that's where it starts for and it's about seeking to hear for God in others or seeing God in others. Mm. Um, this is the sort of new order that's being proclaimed. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think this is a really strong theme. So, again, the NRSV translation, which I continue to dislike for this passage, um, switches between the language of witnesses and testify. Mm. It's the same Greek word. So we, in verse 41, we have chosen by God as testifiers or witnesses. Um, so that's the first group who mm. witnessed Jesus and the resurrection and ate and drank with him. Mm. And then we've got he commanded us to testify. And then we've got in verse 43, all the prophets testify. So we've got this, again, this kind of growth from a select few who who testify to their encounter with Jesus in a very particular way to this command that anyone who's a follower testify to the prophet's testify and I don't know what prophets he's really talking I think this is prophets in the most broad sense old and new kind of Mm. thing Um, so again that baptism calls us into a role to testify as a whole theme you could explore Mm. as well. Now I do have a bone to pick not unusually with the fact that the lectionary ends (laughs) at verse 43 because at 44 and 45 we have people hearing this message, I know. well, not just but Gentiles, and responding in tongues that actually Peter and his Jewish people can understand. Yeah. So Jennings makes this very precise point that I hope I can convey accurately. What's so important here is that, um, the, that the first people to whom we witness is the Jewish people. So... Peter is preaching to Gentiles who then respond by being in conversation, being in conversation yeah. with the Jewish people yes, and verifying the victory of God in them, so them hearing the message. Yes, so it's a, again, it maybe goes back to your point in the Matthew reading of this mutuality, this mm. um, right relationship, which is, you know, the testimony of a bunch of Jewish Jesus followers is heard by Gentiles and then sort of almost and testified and, and it, there's a conversation around and then, of course, this affirmation. I feel like this might be a bit too Pentecosty for, for our lectionary creators because, of course, it's all about the way the Spirit is just outpoured while Peter's speaking. Mm. It's almost like God goes, right, long enough sermon, I'm just going to pour out my Spirit and some stuff's going to happen now because, you know, you've said all that needs to happen. And that's probably a great way to end this episode. May the spirit blow, folks. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.